Welcome to Goodfellow Podcast. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Dr. Anna Lawrence about hot topics in urology. A bit of an update. Anna is a New Zealand-trained urologist who completed her advanced fellowships in reconstruction in neurourology in California, the United States, and India. She is the current president of Continents New Zealand. Since returning home to New Zealand, she has been striving to increase the education and standard of reconstruction in neurourology in New Zealand. Anna enjoys presenting both nationally and internationally to ensure that she stays current and on the cutting edge of the latest techniques and her knowledge for her practice. She holds a consultant post at County's Manukau District Health Board and works in private in Auckland. Welcome, Anna. Good morning. So let's start with urinary tract infections and their management. BPAC have recently changed the antibiotic guidelines. Can you tell us about what's happening here? So I think BPAC's uh, updated their guidelines earlier this year uh, in terms of addressing how we should look at uh, patients with tending with urinary tract infections, signs of cystitis as they've called it, um, whether or not you should be doing cultures. Um, what they're talking about really is with a urine culture, they feel it's not necessary to diagnose cystitis. And I would agree patients presenting clinically with your classic symptoms, you, you know that they've got a bladder infection or not. Um, the thing I don't like what they think is the use of the word cystitis, and I would encourage people not to use it for their patients because patients get very obsessed with the idea that they've got cystitis uh, and they don't understand the difference between uh, infection, inflammation, bladder pain, vulvovaginitis, and they just keep on going on about cystitis. So if I was to rewrite them, I'd get rid of that word in that respect. I think what they've mentioned is important to do your cultures um, to confirm bacteria and able to look at which antibiotics we should be using and in the era of increasing resistance that would be my tendency. I tend to culture more patients than probably necessary but I think particularly living in Auckland where we have an increasing E. coli resistance rate it's really important that people work within what works for them locally in that respect with antibiotics. They have recommended that you culture for males, pregnant ladies, patients with diabetes or renal failure, patients with catheters or patients living in residential care or patients with persistent recurrent cystitis. And I would add to that that patients with spinal cord injuries have a complex lower urinary tract and they should have a urine as well. Um, they've mentioned the common pathogens and those haven't really changed I would say with our patients in this, that are in residential care and also our patients with spinal cord injuries they're getting more unusual bacteria here locally in Auckland and hence that's why it's really important to take a sample from them. Uh, they've switched from trimethoprim I think to nitrofurtone as their first choice. Uh, nitrofurtone is a great drug but of course it makes a lot of patients feel nauseated so it's really important if you can remind them to have food with it otherwise they will end up quite unwell with it. They've said trimethoprim is the alternative um, locally in Auckland again 67% um, of E. coli are now resistant and of course you can get it over the counter than the pharmacist or the chemist here in New Zealand now and so I suspect that that 67% will increase in time as well so I'm not a huge advocate for trimethoprim anymore for that reason if you think your patient is likely to have an E. coli being the most common um, and of course keflexin, keflexin I think is probably a reasonable alternative um, and it's a fairly safe drug uh, with a low resistance still. 
again I've said to myself you know guidelines are, are exactly that they're guidelines doctors should always feel confident to work with what they know for their local community and their local resistance profile and that's why it's important to stay in touch with your microbiologists um, and your laboratories because they're very forthcoming with details of resistance because they too are concerned about the um, epidemic of resistance that we have I think also when you see your patients, if they have come back to you more than once or twice, it's worth asking them around what other doctors they're seeing, what other after-hour doctors they're seeing for their uh, antibiotics, and also if they're getting lots of over-the-counter. Um, in my practice, I find that patients often turn up and they've got bags, handbags full of antibiotics, and you can see looking at them, they've had them prescribed from different general practitioners from different practices at different times, and they've been squirreling them away in their cupboard. Um, and helping themselves to them here, there and everywhere. And I think that is a big problem with our antibiotic resistant profile as well. Uh, one of the things that BPAP has said is don't do your random urine testing. I wholly support that. It gets very difficult when we have patients, particularly those with catheters in place, if you're testing their urines when they're not symptomatic of anything. Um, there's a lot of random urine testing that goes on. I'm unsure quite why people do that. Patients who've got a catheter and will have bacteria in their urine within 24 hours, it's fine, it's not doing them any harm, it's just colonization. We shouldn't be testing the urine for colonization and we should not be treating colonization and that's a massive problem and I think in education as well and rest times a lot of the nurses will take urines randomly, I'm unsure why, um, and in my role in the Auckland Rehabilitation Spawn Unit I would say I spent a considerable length of time with my clinical nurses uh, re-educating residential care level um, patients and staff to stop testing urines. Leave the urine in the catheter bag alone, if you're going to test it, take it from the hub, don't take it from the bag because it's always contaminated. And again, don't treat bacteria don't be treating asymptomatic bacteria it's, it creates an issue where you can't get on top of it and your patient within three or four months will be resistant to everything um, and unfortunately they'll be one of these patients that has to come into hospital every time they get sick which is not good excellent points thank you so we're often asked about strategies to prevent utis or recurrent utis can we talk through a few things and can you tell us how useful they are? So probiotics are hot in the community at the moment. What is the evidence for probiotics? So there's not a lot of evidence for probiotics within the urinary tract system. I think probiotics, there's some evidence that helps the gut bacteria and so the people have then decided that will help prevent infections because it's making you have a healthy gut. Um, I can see how people have made that jump, but there's no randomized controlled trials for it. Um, I'm not adverse to patients taking probiotics if they feel it makes them better from a um, placebo point of view. My concern though is that a lot of these things cost a lot of money and in New Zealand they're not subsidised, they're not covered under our health insurance policies and it means that a lot of patients are forking out a lot of money without a lot of gross benefit um, and I feel it's a bit of snake oil in that respect. What about D-mannose? So D-mannose um, has been randomised in terms of control, in randomised controlled trials. There's trials where it's gone head-to-head -head with nitroferritoin as a preventative or a prophylactic for antibiotics and actually it's been found to be as effective as nitroferritoin in that respect. Um, it was better than nitroferritoin in terms of patients were more religious and stayed at it for longer because obviously nitroferritoin makes you feel nauseated so people give it up faster. So people on D-mannose do get less bladder infections, predominantly E. coli related, um, and they're more likely to stick at it. 
Um, again, of course, unfortunately, New Zealand it's not funded and it can be very um, expensive for them. Um, but it's my first go-to when I'm trying to get patients off antibiotics to address their uh, impending resistance as well as their recurrent uh, E. coli infections. It works well with the fimbriated bacteria, um, not the encapsulated. And if you were using D-mannose, how would you use it? So I use it for two grams a day is what's recommended. Um, and I would normally use it for a course of three months um, and then take them off it and sort of say to them, keep an eye on things, continue with all your other interventions that you've put into place. And the two grams a day is what it's, all the trials have been run at. They do talk about using three grams if you think you've got symptoms coming on. I don't think that the evidence particularly is there, but a lot of patients will trial it because it makes them feel better. So... No harm. There is the only side effect predominantly is that for some patients they do get a change in their bowel habits, so they have noticed that for some patients they get a little bit of diarrhea with it. Um, but otherwise, it's a natural product, so it doesn't have too many side effects. Um, it doesn't confer any resistance going forward because it's not an antibiotic, it's not antibacterial, so it's quite useful from that respect. Sounds like something we should have funded. Uh, yep, I believe so. Cranberries. Cranberries have been hot for oh, years. They not. have, yeah. Tell us about cranberries <laughs> and cranberry juice. So I think cranberries initially when the research was developed, um, it showed great promise for prevention and um, as a prophylactic for um, preventing bladder infections. However, more recently there's been more controversial uh, papers that have been published where people have disagreed. And um, one of these papers come out that said, yes, no, it's still great. Other papers that's come out said, absolutely, waste of time. My feeling is that when you look at the original papers, the actual amount that you need to get into the system, into your urinary system, it's impossible to get that across the shelf with the medications that we can buy at our health food stores. And in terms of cranberry juice, the amount you have to have is just copious. And then you're looking at acidifying the urinary system, which causes some patients irritation. So then they still have the same symptoms of um, urgency, frequency, and discomfort because they've got an acidic urine. And of course, that's a highly sugared juice for our diabetics it's not either good either because then they get their flooded glucose which is fabulous for the bacteria um, so I stay away from it I think it's just too complex to try and explain to patients you can only have this amount at this time and in this volume um, but again a lot of patients swear by it so if it's not doing them any harm but I don't certainly don't recommend it vaginal estrogen so vaginal estrogen for females I think is a brilliant idea. It's highly effective, it has a low so, um, side effect profile. Um, there is evidence that it reduces the number of infections by about 50%. So I normally prescribe a Vestin because that's what is funded in New Zealand. I initially start with two to three weeks of using it every night of the week and then go, dropping down to two nights a week for a week and then down to once a week going forward. Um, and ask them to put it on the calendar or on their phone because obviously a once a week medication is quite hard for people to remember and for a lot of ladies it's all they need. And oral estrogen compared to vaginal estrogen? So I never prescribe oral, I only ever prescribe um, vaginal predominantly because I'm trying to improve uh, urethral health. It's all about the urethral health as a uro urologist um, and using it locally you get no other side effects. I think if patients are taking um, oral hormone replacement because they're perimenopausal, sometimes it's very useful but there's no harm often in giving them a course of investin as well just with the urethra um, to give it extra plumping up and prevention of bladder infections. Perfect. And do you 
instruct your patients to use the Avestin any differently? So putting it around the urethra or just... Um, so if I'm particularly concerned that they've got overactivity um, and recurrent UTIs, I would encourage them after they've put and use the applicator and um, filled up the vagina at night so then when they're lying in bed um, in theory it stays in place longer I tell them to put a pea size amount to the pea hole and I use it sort of analogy so then hopefully they remember the pea to the pea otherwise patients don't really remember and a lot of women actually don't know where they wee out of so it's quite an interesting concept. What about increasing fluids to over 1.5 litres a day there was quite an interesting trial recently about this. Yeah so we at the spinal unit, the Auckland Rehabilitation Spinal Unit, have been asking patients to drown themselves in fluids for a really long time, predominantly because it prevents stone infection, um, prevents concentrated urine, keeps everything going. And it makes sense that if you drink a lot of fluid, in theory, you won't get infections. And But up till recently, of course, there wasn't anyone who'd actually looked into it. And all the trials about most of the uh, fluid intake or um, other sorts of things for prevention haven't been randomised, they haven't been big numbers, they've all been people just giving their expert opinions I do encourage my patients to drink more I try and get them to drink at least one and a half litres of water often because most people who present when you get them to do a bladder diary they're only drinking maybe two or three cups a day and if they are drinking more than that it tends to be coffee coffee and tea we're huge coffee and tea drinkers in New Zealand and I think that makes us slightly dehydrated all the time um, so I do encourage them to try and drink enough uh, fluid that the urine looks clear so then you know that their kidneys are well hydrated and for a lot of patients it means they also then um, move their bowels more regularly which also helps with their entire pelvic floor um, in terms of pelvic floor tone to pelvic floor function and then they do better overall and they actually do do a lot better with their recurrent UTIs as well at the same time. Uh, so Anna talking about actually treating urinary tract infections with big volumes of water uh, there was an, a um, study in JAMA in 2018. Can we talk about that? Yeah, so I think that's a, it was a good study in the fact that they've actually addressed it where people have just talked about it previously but we've, no one's actually researched it. Um, and what they've done is they've demonstrated that in patients who increase their fluids to over 1.5 litres, they reduce their recurrent bladder infections by about 50%. Um, which was a similar reduction for those who were also using antibiotics to prevent infections. So I think um, as a risk reduction, they also demonstrated um, decreasing it by 85%. So using water is such a simple tool. It's so low risk if you can give the patients simple guidelines. Um, and again, we're moving away from using antibiotics, which prevents that ongoing resistance that we're also fearful of. So I think it's a good study. Obviously, it's not a massive number of patients, and it would be good to recruit more and repeat the study. But I think it's a really good start, and it does demonstrate to patients if they do drink, they will prevent themselves getting infections. Thank you. So moving on now to overactive bladder, most GPs are familiar with anticholinergics, but are there alternatives that are better? Again, um, a study out of JAMA about in 2016 demonstrated that the chronic use in the over 65-year-old group, age group of anticholinergics had a relative risk um, ratio of increasing your Alzheimer's and dementias in these patients. So from a urological point of view, that's made a lot of us quite uncomfortable handing out anticholinergics left, right and centre, which obviously we've been doing for a really long time for overactivity of the bladder. Alternatives, um, so obviously in New Zealand we're funded for oxybutynin, solanefacid and tolteridine. There are anticholinergics that 
don't cross the blood-brain barriers frequently, something called trapezotron, which we unfortunately do not get in New Zealand. Um, so then thinking outside the box and going forward, what should we be doing? What should we be offering our patients? Um, internationally speaking, what's offered after the medications, the first line medications that are in effect is medications called mirabigolone. So this is a beta-3 agonist. They do have it available in Australia. We don't have it in New Zealand as of yet, and that's more uh, to do with funding and politics of the different companies as opposed to not being a good medication. This medication is the newest medication we have thinking about overactivity basically since the 1970s. This group of people thought, how can we improve these symptoms without using an anticholinergic? Um, it decreases urgency, decreases frequency, um, and episodes of urgent incontinence. Its predominant side effect is hypertension um, in about 10% of patients. So we don't have it available, but internationally that's the next step that's now considered. After that, or on the same sort of staircase level as that, is intravesical Botox therapy, peripheral tibial nerve stimulation, and sacral neuromodulation. So Botox is just like what people have cosmetically. It's placed intravesically, so into the wall um, of the bladder, normally under a local anaesthetic um, or a general anaesthetic, depending on the patient and their tolerance. Um, anywhere between 100 to up to 300 units are used, depending on the effect you're after. The more you use, the more efficacious it is, so the more the patient will have less urgency, frequency, but also the risk of increased urinary retention. When we put bigger doses in, it doesn't give the patient longevity, unfortunately. Lots of patients want more because they don't want it to come back and see you. But Botox in the bladder lasts about six to nine months, depending on the patient, and has an onset between 10 to 14 days. Um, so it's a great drug, works really well. It's life-changing for a lot of patients, but its biggest issue is that it years off, so you have to have it recidivatively placed. Um, then there's peripheral tibial nerve stimulation. When I was in fellowship in California, we used this a lot for overactivity of the bladder as well as bladder pain. We really liked it because it had a minimal side effect profile. It involves a acupuncture needle that goes in at the tibial nerve around the malleolus, um, and then you're hooked up to a little um, electrical machine uh, after you've been grounded on the sole of your foot, and you get Zapped is the best way to describe it. Patients describe it like a constant little butterfly pushing on the foot. Um, one of my patients who's heavily tattooed said it's like having a tattoo needle just sit in one place. So you get that for 30 minutes for 12 weeks, starting with a bladder diary at the beginning, repeat a bladder diary at the end, have a look. It too decreases urgency, frequency, and urge incontinence episodes. Um, and your only side effect is that you have to sit still for 30 minutes for every week for 12 weeks, and it's an acupuncture needle, so the hole is you can't even see it week after week you can't find where you've put it in the week before in terms of its development it's been around for approximately 10 years now its research is increasing it's been finding they're picking up getting bigger and bigger trials it is as effective as the medications probably not as effective as botox um, but it has less side effect profiles than botox it's also been um, researched in um, patients with parkinson's disease which is unusual to get such a large group and it has shown benefit for those patients as well which is great because obviously a lot of our medications that we use for overactivity are completely inappropriate for our parkinson's patients um, and then alternative again is something called a sacral neuromodulating device this is an implantable device, so it's completely internalized. It is the equivalent of a pacemaker for the bladder. You have a little lead that you put in through the S3 foramen in the back of the patient. They have a 
two-week um, trial period where everything is still externalised. They assess whether or not their bladder improves in terms of its urgency, frequency and episodes of incontinence. And if it's looking much improved, then you implant a battery. And then the patient has a remote control that they carry with a few programs on it that's designed to re-stimulate their bladder so the bladder behaves better and doesn't give them so much bother. And that battery lasts anywhere between 7 to 10 years. Um, and in terms of new technology, uh, the leads that we place are MRI safe and the company is looking at trying to make the battery MRI safe for our patients with things like uh, multiple sclerosis who need to have recidivist MRIs to track their disease. Um, it is um, sacral neuromodulating device has been around for nearly 20 years now. It's very well um, established for its use in overactivity and also urinary retention without obstruction internationally. We don't have great access to it, unfortunately, in New Zealand, which is immensely disappointing because it's a brilliant device. Um, when you look at it head-to-head -head for some of our patients, particularly our young patients in their 20s who are using Botox, they're going to have to have Botox maybe twice a year for the rest of their life, um, whereas if you can give them one sacroneurum module, it's going to last them the next 10 years. The next operation to replace the battery takes half an hour. It's a much, much better use of our health dollar as far as I'm concerned because they can carry on working, it's not time off work, it's not a general aesthetic each time, um, but unfortunately as we all know, health dollars don't look at those things. So, um, And of course for patients who've got, who fail all of those steps, we still have the traditional um, augmentation where we take bowel and place it onto the bladder. It's not done very often anymore, um, so if your patient did need that it would be important they went to a centre um, who are used to handling the bowel and do it more frequently than others. So in a Finally, um, one of your specialties is female strictures. I wonder if you can talk us through this. So female urethral stricture disease um, is occurs again in about 3% of the female population who present with lower urinary tract bother. It's really important um, that if we think about it, that the last thing we do is recidivitously dilate these ladies. So traditionally speaking, so in the 80s, a lot of ladies had urethral dilatations for um, interstitial cystitis or recurrent urinary tract infections. And there's Cochrane reviews that demonstrated that it was no better than placebo. Um, there was a group in Europe who literally um, put some females asleep and did nothing and put another group of females asleep and dilated them and they demonstrated no difference. So um, unfortunately, however, urethral dilatation for unknown reasons is still a huge issue in the urological care of female uh, urethras and 80% of strictures are caused by urologists, urogynecologists and gynecologists that are just dilating urethras on lady patients for goodness knows what reasons. So if you do have patients, female patients with stricture disease, I'd encourage you to have a discussion with them about, um, you know, do they really need that dilatation? Is it actually of benefit? Um, so traditionally speaking with female stricture disease, we haven't managed it well, um, but now there's sort of a resurgence of interest in actually completing urethroplasties. Um, there's some very cynical articles in the Journal of Urology about dilatation, how it's like a, a rash for a urologist. Financially, it makes better sense to never actually offer urethroplasties because they have to come back and see you every three to six months for you to dilate, henceforth make more money out of it. Um, and hence, um, it's a very contentious sort of area where a lot of people say, no, 
they shouldn't have urethroplasties where um, a lot of us that are reconstructive trained would be like, well, if you've had one dilatation and then a second dilatation, we all know by the time you get to your third, it's got a success rate of 0% for both male and female. And so both male and female patients should be reviewed for urethroplasty. I guess the difference for the female patients is traditionally we didn't do them because we were concerned about their sphincter mechanism and the risk of incontinence. That's actually, with more people completing the procedure, we now know that that's actually less than 5% of patients will be incontinent after the procedure. So it's actually not as disastrous as we thought it would be. And if they are incontinent, more often than not, it's actually overactivity with urge incontinent because their bladder's been working so hard to pass urine through a needle-sized urethra um, that for a period of time it's super excited and um, is overactive, which obviously is easy to manage compared to stress incontinence in this setting. So if you do have patients with stricture, male and female, um, it's definitely worth having them reviewed by someone who has a passion for urethroplasties. Most centres, uh, big centres in New Zealand and in Australia will have a urethroplasty expert um, and males and females should be offered urethroplasties if they've had more than two dilatations because they're simply just not successful and it's not fair to offer a patient an operation that doesn't work going forward for them. And talk us a little bit through this procedure. Um, so for urethroplasty for a lady patient, we it's a little bit like having a prolapse surgery for them. So it's a vaginal incision most of the time. Um, we find the urethra. We will replace tissue um, in the urethra with tissue from inside the mouth. So using plastic surgical techniques of grafting. Um, so removing some buccal mucosal graft and using that to recreate a lumen size that's appropriate to void out of does involve having a catheter in for about four to six weeks afterwards so patients have to be prepared for that commitment and for female patients I always use a suprapubic catheter so then if the catheter bag fills up there's no weight through that nice new recreated lumen that you've done um, and then normally a week off work because it's a bit uncomfortable um, or dissolvable sutures and repeat imaging with a maturating sister urethrogram to make sure that everything has healed afterwards um, and as long given it's a Using plastic surgical techniques, as long as the surgeon um, applies all those plastic surgical techniques, risks of incontinence and fistulation to the vagina are very, very low. And in the male patient? In the male patient, it's slightly more complex simply because um, of the length of the urethra. Um, probably 70% of our workers in the bulba urethra um, and so most of the time we'll make an incision in the perineum and because if you go through the perineum you can get straight onto the urethra um, again traditionally we used to the thinking was to cut out the stricture we don't cut out the stricture because the stricture scar the more you cut out a scar the more scar you create so it's you make an incision in the lumen and add to it to gain width so then you have a larger diameter um, again taking tissue from inside the mouth um, preferentially um, we used to use a lot of skin skin's not really ideal because it's hair bearing um, and if you have hair inside the urethra you get stones in the urethra you get recurrent infections um, and then normally someone else has to revise it at a later stage so we try and avoid penile skin or scrotal skin unless we have something that we would refer to as a disaster plasty and we're having to take tissue from everywhere to fix it for them um, but buccal graft inside the mouth is fabulous it's used to being moist, it transfers really well, it heals really well, um, it's very clever. That was actually, in the 1700s, a Russian gentleman started taking it and placing it in the urinary system. So it's been around for a while. <laughs> Fantastic. Mm. 
Thank you, Anna. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Um, I think for urinary tract infections, um, try and get away from the tradition of using antibiotics every night for prophylaxis. Move towards products such as D-Manos. Encourage them to drink more. And if they're getting recurrent infections or have a complex urinary tract, refer on to your local urologist or urology department. It's really important. Um, we're all happy to help you with it because it is a huge problem in the community. Um, and I think together we can work well to prevent the ongoing resistance which is a massive issue globally um, not just for a urinary tract. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast please fill in the reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources used in this podcast. Thank you for listening.